Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, This is uh, Tracy Morgan, your host. And I will be joined today with uh, co-host Josie Oppenheim, returning once again to um, help out with this interview. We invited uh, Oppenheim to come uh, because she's on the uh, research faculty at the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies. And the book that we'll be talking about today is pertains to psychoanalytic research. And uh, we're speaking with Robert Hinshelwood about his book, Research on the Couch, Single Case Studies, Subjectivity, and Psychoanalytic Knowledge. Robert Hinshelwood is, I believe, our second British author. We did interview Susie Orbach, so we're quite pleased to be making our way across the pond. But Robert Hinshelwood is a professor in the Center for Psychoanalytic Studies at the University of Essex, Previously, he served as a consultant psychotherapist in the British National Health Service for 20 years and then was clinical director at the Castle Hospital in London. He's a fellow of the British Psychoanalytical Society and a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He's authored a dictionary of Kleinian thought, which uh, was published in 1989, and other books and articles largely on Kleinian psychoanalysis. In 2000, he published Observing Organizations, which was edited with Wilhelm Gottstad, I hope I pronounced that correctly, and and in that book, uh, they apply psychoanalytic observation um, to social science. 2004 saw the publication of his book, Suffering Insanity, on schizophrenia in psychiatric institutions. Hinshelwood is also um, a founder of the British Journal of Psychotherapy and the journal Psychoanalysis in History. So we're very pleased to have him with us. Um, before we get started, I also wanted to alert the listeners to um, a change that will be taking place. Uh, you'll probably notice it this summer. It's something to look forward to um, in New Books and Psychoanalysis. We are expanding our um, hosts. Um, and we're adding um, a really terrific group of um Hosts, so that we hope to begin to cover more and more and more psychoanalytic books. Um, my goal is that we cover everything <laughs> published in English every year um, that we can and uh, move from there. So that's a very exciting prospect, and you can look forward to hearing from new uh, new thinkers and new authors and new hosts. So without further ado, let's move to the interview. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan. I'm here once again with uh, Josie Oppenheim, who uh, will be working together on this interview. And today we have with us Robert Hinchelwood, and we'll be discussing with him his new publication, Rutledge uh, 2013, entitled Research on the Couch, Single Case Studies, Subjectivity, and Psychoanalytic Knowledge. So welcome. Hello. Hello. Uh, Hello from England. <laughs> Nice to meet you, and uh, thank you for taking the time. Well, you came highly recommended um, from uh, our friend Orna Ophir, and uh, that you would be very good to speak to. So Josie uh, Oppenheim is, as I think I mentioned to you, also on the research committee of the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies, so it was a great pleasure to be able to ask her 
to come and and take part in this. The first question that every author is asked, more or less, in New Books in Psychoanalysis is um, what um, motivated you, uh, what drove you, however you want to put it, um, to to write this uh, to write this book. Could you tell us? Uh, yes, uh, it, it, um, there's a number of um, uh, different um, um, roots to the motivation. Um, partly was is the concern that there is about psychoanalytic knowledge and whether it's valid knowledge. Um, insurance companies in the United States, uh, state um, health services in Britain and on the continent are all uh, asking for evidence, evidence for therapeutic uh, interventions. And uh, there's always the uh, view that psychoanalysis doesn't have adequate evidence. Um, this is not entirely true. Uh, there's an awful lot of evidence which gets um, discounted. Uh, and I was interested that uh, psychoanalysts seem to have been pushed into a crisis of confidence about the validity of their knowledge. And a lot of, uh, there are a lot of projects now going on um, in uh, Britain, the continent, Europe, and in America that's trying to produce evidence on the basis of outcome. Um, great, I think that's fine. Um, my second thought was that Freud always thought that uh, research produced uh, knowledge from the clinical setting and all of his uh, major case histories and uh, all of the major developments are supported with uh, by his um, uh, discussion of the clinical context, clinical process. So these um, uh, were some of my interests. Um, in addition, um, I'm not uh, I'm not a Freud basher at all. I have a great respect for him, but I do get anxious that psychoanalysis itself um, shoots itself in the foot by having so many different competing uh, theories. Um, uh, and what this amounts to is that we can't really seem to decide amongst ourselves which are our best theories. Mm. Uh, so that we have a whole range uh, of different ideas and concepts which have been called a Tower of Babel. And David Tuckett says, well, anything goes. Anybody's got a bright idea is in a position to just promote it. Um, <clears throat> and uh, isn't there something we can do, I thought? Shouldn't we be thinking about what we can do to decide which of our ideas are the best ones, which are better than others, or which are better for what purpose than others? Shouldn't we have some system for... So weeding and pruning. Um, and then this brings us to the question, is psychoanalysis like the like uh, material science, which does have a system of testing the best ideas? So uh, these things are mulling around in my head at a time Oh, in the late 90s, when I left my work, I retired from my work in the public service and the National Health Service in Britain and went to teach in a university at the Centre for Psychoanalytic Studies, as it was called, in my university. That's the University of Essex. And there, um, there were lots of eager um, students, also lots of eager um, academics around the university who were challenging, interested, sympathetic to psychoanalytic ideas, but who wanted to think about, you know, what, what, what is the nature of psychoanalytic knowledge? And I ran a course for um, 
more than 10 years on a critical methodology. How does one get knowledge out of the clinical situation, which is where most of our knowledge comes from. Nearly all our knowledge comes from the clinical situation. So I spent 10 years trying to teach this, and as is always the case, uh, you learn more when you teach something than when you go on a course as a participant. Anyway, so I learned. I don't know what my students learned, but I learned. Um, a lot about what were the questions that should be asked and thinking about ways in which they might be answered. What is psychoanalytic knowledge and how can we know that it is valid? So those were the sort of, that's the background to to the book, uh, Research on the Couch. It is about uh, research from the clinical situation and the clinical process. Uh, so, in short, that's the that's the beginning of the book. Right. Um, did you have a question that, that we have a, uh, we have a sure. number of questions here that we want to ask that sort of revolve yes. around some of this, right? right. Uh, yeah. I I, I well, reading your oh yes, sorry. Hi. Um, uh, one of the problems, uh, as you point out, is that the instrument used for gathering information in scientific research is uh, the mind, which is the object of investigation in psychoanalysis. Yes. In other words, if I understand you correctly, we are a little bit as if in the quantum world. In order to look at our mind, we must change our position and so have altered the object we are attempting to perceive. Um, <laughs> how do you suggest we manage this difficulty with respect to psychoanalytic research? <laughs> yes, this is a major, major problem. I think that's true. And uh, a lot of my book uh, uh, tries to address that that difficulty. I have to say, I don't know if I've cracked the problem, but uh -huh. <laughs> what I'm saying with the book is that we ought to keep thinking about this sort of problem, and if my book doesn't really adequately deal with the problem, then somebody else needs to write another book which will deal better <laughs> with the problem. Ah, that's a research this, model, all right. <laughs> that's a sort of research model, isn't it? Yeah, yes. <laughs> but it's true that I think Psychoanalysis is not really one of the natural sciences because it doesn't deal with facts about the material, physical world. Mm -hmm. It deals with our experiences. Um, and that makes it, it seems to me, a very different animal from natural science. And this is where I part company from Freud, actually, who thought that uh, it is the, that psychoanalysis is a natural science like any other, I think he said, something like that in the outline of psychoanalysis late in his life. Um, I think it isn't, and I think we ought to honour uh, the particular um, difference that we are dealing with subjective facts as opposed to material facts in um, natural science. Bob Caper wrote a book called Immaterial Facts, which is a nice slogan and makes the difference. Um, I think we should be, should recognize that and perhaps be a bit proud of the fact that we're doing something a little bit different, but it brings in train a, a number of uh, difficult problems, one of which is the one you mentioned, that in order to develop a body of subjective data, we need a subjective instrument. Uh, how else could we find subjective data uh, if it isn't with a subjective instrument like our minds. But this then creates the, uh, the difficulty that we are uh, vulnerable to criticisms about the subjectivity of our observations, how we see what we want to see 
And um, a, a good deal of the book is trying to understand how we might be, be able to be more um, confident that our observations and the theories of our, uh, we arrive at from our observations are not just uh, wishful thinking based on our own subjectivity. Um, <clears throat> the particular uh, shall I go on about this, or do you want to? Well, I wanted I wanted to comment on that. I think that I like I like the idea that you have about boosting the confidence uh, of of the analyst um, by um, being able to produce some research. Because I I, I am concerned about our uh, loss of cachet and mm -hmm. com and confidence. What uh, <laughs> and so I'm you know I. I'm in favor of what what can we do to to boost that. Um, I guess a question I have. Um, you raised something before about um, you used the term experience uh, that we have immaterial facts. Um, and I want to quote you in the book. Um, you say much of the predicament of psychoanalysis today is that the core problems of focusing on experience severely restricts the strength of the claim to be scientific. Uh, and when I read this, it brought to mind the work of a historian, and my background is in history as well as psychoanalysis, uh, a woman named Joan Wallach Scott, who wrote a brilliant essay probably 20 years ago um, here in the States called The Evidence of Experience. <clears throat> and uh, so she's writing as a historian, uh, but she tells us that uh, in quote, I, and I'm going to quote her, experience is at once always already an interpretation and something that needs to be interpreted. What counts as experience is neither self-evident nor straightforward. It is always contested and always, therefore, she writes, political. The study of experience, therefore, must call into question its originary status. So that's, that's her quote. And I was thinking both analysts and historians, interestingly, traffic in history and the attempt to grasp the subjectivity of the subjects we study, be they documents, from the past or the patient before us. And yet claiming to know from, quote, experience can stymie both modes of inquiry. So the question is, I think people in the listening audience will be interested in this as well, is how do we as analysts define experience? Or in other words, how do we know we have legitimate psychoanalytic data? Yes, that's the big question. <clears throat> that's why we're asking. It's a whole. Yes, um, but, uh, yes, that's right. Uh, um, uh, I, I, I probably, I probably duck the question of what is experience, <laughs> uh, and um, I probably should um, well, read you, up you the essay that you were you <laughs> describing by the historian. Yes. Yeah. I think my position starts again with uh, with Freud, um, where he says somewhere, I think in one of the introductory lectures, uh, it's all in the book, that when we say something about um, a patient's experience, when we make an interpretation, uh, it has to tally with something or other in the patient's and I think that's the crucial, um, the crucial issue. Whatever experience is, it is something which you can touch in the patient with an interpretation. And then the question is, uh, how do we assess whether we've touched that, uh, uh, that bit of the patient or that bit of the patient's experience? And uh, quite a lot of the book is uh, devoted to understanding how in a clinical situation we can assess whether uh, we have said something which tallies with something in the patient. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I suppose um, uh, I, I was also thinking in relation to what you were saying about the, that uh, historical essay 
we're not just concerned with conscious experience either. There's something that is mysteriously thought of as the unconscious experience, mm -hmm. that which is behind dreams. Uh, so we're in a very murky area, groping our way in a fog. Um, but it's the, uh, it's, Freud's remark about tallying with something in the patient. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you probably know Adolf Grunbaum took yeah. this up as the tally principle. I thought this was good. I thought uh, Grun Grunbaum, one of the great Freud bashers, um, actually said some sensible <laughs> and helpful things as well. Nothing is all bad. He didn't know what he he didn't know exactly what he was saying. Yeah. <laughs> right. His, yes. un his unconscious Maybe. spoke, we caught it. Right. <laughs> So I think um, one of the issues we have to think about in terms of the uh, research in the clinical setting is how do we assess um, whether we have said something which tallies and um, touches the patient in a way which can then be claimed as a piece of, um, of data. When I said this, the patient said something or other. What sort of things would the patient say which made us think that we had touched something in the patient? Okay, just an aside, because it's my skepticism about um, psychoanalysis and a lot of, uh, and, and the way that a lot of psychoanalysis is practiced is that uh, psychoanalysts in their busy days, full of um, tension and anxiety tend to operate in such a way that they like to fit the patients to their theories. This is something I think that Marshall Edelson talks about. Uh, and this is not research. It may be useful clinically, but it's not research to fit a patient to the theory is often not quite what the patient wants either to be boxed into a piece yeah. of theory. Right. Uh, <clears throat> it. So it, um, it requires us, I think, to be attentive to what happens with our patients when we make interpretations and how can we know mm -hmm. that when, uh, when we've made an interpretation which has touched him, tallied with something in him, and when we've made an interpretation, which however much it sounds right and makes sense to us, uh, doesn't touch the patient because he's <clears throat> he is um, actually occupied with a different kind of sense or different set of meanings uh, to his own experience. Um, it's been a long tradition actually in, in psychoanalysis that uh, what you do is you look at the response to an interpretation and to see uh, how the patient um, uh, is affected by the interpretation and not just consciously but produces from their unconscious uh, uh, associations which might be confirming, might produce a dream in the next session, etc. So uh, my uh, a, a lot of the argument in the book is about how we can deal with uh, this question by examining the response to interpretations. Uh, yeah, I think that. That you're going to that I, I felt in the book that you were going a step further, uh, in the sense that uh, I think in a way we're all conducting. I agree that we're all conducting research with our patients. Uh, that psychoanalysis is a form of research uh, in and of itself. Um, but I had the idea in reading your book that you felt that there was a way that we could, for example, compare uh, metapsychologies, meta uh, which is a much more complex thing than 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 guessing or or verifying uh, that our that we've somehow touched the experience. Um, 
and and, uh, and more and probably more problematic, uh, more more ambitious, um, and and, and extremely interesting. So I wondered if you could uh, say something yes. about that. Uh, I think it's a very pertinent point. Um, I mean, first of all, I. I think probably most interpretations carry within them some metapsychology that the interpretation has some conviction for the analyst because it um, it, it, uh, it draws on some uh, metapsychological idea or theory that the analyst is uh, personally committed to. Um, uh, the uh, the question uh, then is um, about uh, um, I think the question then is how do we assess if that interpretation um, is a valid one that touches the patient uh, and if it does I think we're entitled to say that the metapsychological theory that is embedded in or uh, uh, inspires the interpretation is probably a valid uh, piece of meta uh, metapsychology, um, perhaps for this particular patient uh, or with these particular problems or dynamics or, or, or whatever. Uh, so I uh, I think the uh, validity of a piece of meta uh, psychology um, is tested by the way in which the interpretation uh, evokes as, as some sort of valid response. I think, though, that the really complicated bit is to assess. What uh, what is a valid response uh, in the patients? And uh, one of the problems you see is that people who have a loyalty to a one particular metapsychological theory will assess a response to an interpretation in terms of that metapsychological theory, and people who hold another metapsychological theory will assess the response to interpretation in terms of their alternative uh, theory. So that just um, uh, taking the response to an interpretation uh, is not enough. Uh, uh, the, the problem is that uh, you need to understand the conditions of the response what's uh, what its features are how it comes about in order to know um if it is uh if it validates the the theory one of the things i try to do in the book successfully or not i don't know you can tell me okay. but it's <laughs> to say that the response to the interpretation needs to be assessed in terms of theories which are separate from the metapsychological theory which goes into the interpretation. I don't know if that's uh, if, if that's an easy thing to absorb, but um, I try to. Uh, divide psychoanalytic theory into two uh, kinds. Metapsychological theory, which contributes to making um, sense of the associations and constructing an interpretation, and what's uh, called by uh, some people, George Klein, I believe, Robert Wallerstein, called clinical theory, which is looking at the, which is theory used to look at the clinical process that goes on, uh, and so that the validity of uh, a theory inspiring an interpretation is looked at in terms of the clinical theory which makes sense of the process from the associations before the interpretation uh, 
to the associations after the interpretation. Is that all too complicated? I <laughs> feel it's extremely complicated. That's beautifully complicated. <laughs> beautifully complicated. That, that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> um, I, I guess my question for the, you know, as a, thinking of the listeners and myself, is, yes. uh, is what, uh, what are we meaning by clinical theory? How is that different? I mean, we, for example, the modern school has a very strong attitude about clinical theory, uh, but I don't know exactly what uh, you would be meaning when you say clinical theory as opposed to metapsychological theory. Um, it's uh, difficult to make a distinction, but I... Um I dodged the issue a little bit by uh, drawing on Robert Wallerstein and yeah. his paper, when was it, 1990, was it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, in which he talked about the common ground yeah. uh, when he was president of the IPA. Mm -hmm. And he um, selected a small list of um, theories which are used to understand clinical process, particularly uh, transference and countertransference and... Uh, anxiety and defense. Uh -huh. uh, and if one restricts um, one's assessment of the response to interpretation to those theories, then my claim is that we're able to uh, ask uh, about the validity of all that other range of metapsychological theories, which are a tower of Babel um, uh, to be to be validated. So, if one looks at the transference and countertransference as it evolves in terms of the patient's anxiety and the defences they use against the anxiety. Mm -hmm. Uh, how does the interpretation change mm -hmm. the, the anxiety defense uh, balance in the patient oh. so that the transference and countertransference changes after the interpretation? Okay. That, those are the conditions, I think, which are necessary for understanding whether the response to an interpretation validates mm -hmm. the metapsychology. Uh -huh. that, that, oh. that makes that, sense. Yeah, I get it. That, that makes sense. Okay. I mean, that sounds very uh, uh, useful. Well, it might be useful. It, it needs to be uh, worked out in practice. Um, I have uh, tried to give some examples towards the end of the book. Right. How this might um, play out with actual clinical material, actual cases. Um, there are... Um, uh, I mean, I draw particularly on the uh, on the idea of countertransference, and as it has been developed, at least in British uh, psychoanalysis, perhaps South American psychoanalysis, since 1950, and I think rather later in American psychoanalysis. Um, uh, but I am particularly uh, interested in the way countertransference helps us to understand how the patient is struggling with the transference anxieties and the defenses that are set up in the transference to handle those anxieties. Mm -hmm. So that uh, countertransference is quite an important element uh, as understood in a, an object relations uh, uh, paradigm. Sure. Um, now, of course, you may say, oh, well, yes, but isn't this prioritizing object relations metapsychology as opposed to uh, ego psychology, self psychology, re relational psychoanalysis, and, and so on? And maybe it is. Or maybe it is valid to look at transference and countertransference as a psychoanalytic process there in front of you in the session and is in some way separate from those theories which don't deal with process in the session but deal with meanings mm -hmm. which can be interpreted. Right, right. Like the Lacanians would uh, probably um, 
not using a lot of countertransference, I don't think, as information. Um, yeah. This model might might not work um, might not work as well. Um, I, uh, okay. Yeah, just just a thought as as I'm listening to you and and learning um, some more. Um, I wanted to ask you a question uh, more about um, sort of the position that the profession is in and the relationship of research to that uh, position, which is you know that we're a bit a bit downtrodden. Um, and I uh, I have a a quote from um, I don't know if you know his work at all, Barnaby Barrett, who's I think I believe he's South African uh, analyst. And he he takes quite a strong strong stance. Um, and he says, as is well known, there's a tradition of opposition to the method of the psychoanalytic discourse by, quote, analytic philosophers, whom you discuss in, yeah. in the book. Um, those identified with conventional thinking about what is and is not scientific. And then he says, the history of our various responses to such criticism has, by and large, not been a tale of valor and clear-sightedness. We fail yes. to appreciate that the method of psychoanalysis might inherently conflict with the metaphysical or ideological canons of official science itself. The reaction of our leading thinkers to the protagonists of official science has always been defensive. And then he says, I believe quite unnecessarily so. Offense would be more appropriate. My, the sense I had when reading your book is it looks like it's an attempt using uh, sort of a, a, a research method, um, but it's an attempt to nevertheless take the offensive. Yes. 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 So, so can you could you sort of talk about talk about research on the offensive? Research <laughs> Offen on the offensive. offensive. Research, research on the offensive. How you, you want to phrase it? Well, yeah. yes, that deserves a paper, doesn't it? Research on the offensive. I mean, I agree that um, uh, psychoanalysts have not been particularly good at uh, challenging the criticisms that have been um, increasingly leveled really since the uh, end of the Second World War by philosophers uh, um, as well as other uh, psychologists. I'm not a philosopher. I'm just, I, orig I originated as a doctor and a psychiatrist before I became a psychoanalyst. So I'm a, a completely amateur philosophers struggling with um, some of the philosophical ideas which I try to make sense of in, in the book we're discussing. But um, I think that's true of a great many uh, psychoanalysts that we have a sense that we have a theory of mind uh, but that we really don't know properly how that theory of mind is placed within the various theories of mind that operate within uh, philosophy and that have been uh, argued for whatever two and a half thousand years of Western philosophy. So I think uh, I agree with Barnaby Barrett that uh, we haven't done too well at challenging these things. Um, I suppose I think with some sympathy that most analysts are occupied with a tough job in the consulting room, listening to a lot of anxiety, which does all sorts of things to the analyst's own personality. Uh, and we perhaps don't have the time or the mental space to take on board some of these issues, which really need to be addressed. When I went from um, my health service practice to the university, I thought it's probably my responsibility as an analyst to be able at the university to devote time and space in my mind to trying to think and, uh, about these things. And uh, this book is a result of some of those um, attempts to uh, understand theories, theories of mind. My sense uh, is that um, it's n it, it, that psychoanalysis is probably not uh, exactly the same as a natural science. It's probably a bit more than the hermeneuticists say that it is just 
about making meanings and they sometimes almost seem to be saying, well, any old meaning is good for the patient, a bit like vitamins. You give people vitamins and it makes them healthy. <laughs> you give people meanings and that makes their minds work better. I think there's something a bit more specific. Uh, that we have to um, attend to and take an interest in. And I think it isn't quite like natural science. As I said before, it's because we are occupied with a non-material world, immaterial facts. <coughs> uh, I think that puts it uh, beside natural science, and I hope it doesn't put it against natural science, but yeah. puts it beside natural science, and that my book is an attempt to produce a model of testing which is a bit like, rather like, it has the logic of the scientific testing, but takes account of the very different kinds of um, facts and evidence which we inevitably have to work with. Um, I think that's something we should put forward. If I'm a more of a political sort of person, I think I would like to go on the offensive more <laughs> and go to, go to philosophical yeah, conferences fun. and play. <laughs> It's more of a uh, stay away from my defenses. I'm going to go on the on the offense. I think <laughs> I think something I liked a lot um, about the book was the attempt to say it's neither it, it's not natural science, but it's not not natural science. And I think yes. what we struggle with um, in psychoanalysis, and uh, particularly as it relates to sort of the, uh, for lack of a better term, the general public, is that uh, you know, well, well if it's not. Um, mental health profession necessarily it's not science well then you know then natural science then then what is it and we, we were joking around before the interview Josie and I we said something like you know it's funny all this the push um, not so much that your book book is pushing this but there's the sense of being on the defensive so let's prove that our work is good and let's show our research and Josie and I were laughing and saying yeah but everybody's getting acupuncture chiropractic doing Tai Chi and taking vitamins and there's like no there are plenty of studies that prove these things aren't, you know, necessarily good, might be okay, might be deleterious. It doesn't stop people. It's something at the level, we're thinking it's more at the level of sort of popular discourse um, that we, that, you know, we need to try to figure out how to, how to intervene on behalf of psychoanalysis. I mean, it doesn't matter. People go to the chiropractor, whether it's good for them or, or not. Um, research isn't going to change it very much, I don't think, in the end. Um, it has a. It's popular in the culture. Yes, I I, I understand what you're saying. That uh, what's the point of intervention to to take the offensive? And it may be in terms of popular culture. I, uh, I I'm sure that's not bad. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. you can tell us about. Um, I, I think it's the same in America, but I'm not sure. But in, uh, in Britain and the continent, the particular concern is about funding agencies uh, that are not um, particularly aware of uh, public opinion, except in term, except in the sense that they are spending public money, and they want um, to be assured that they're spending public money on things that are good for the public. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think one has to think in terms of uh, uh, these rather official bodies, uh, medical insurance, um, uh, state-funded health, uh, health care, and so on, as well as uh, public opinion. Um, uh, that's the particular context of the situation that I think we're in in Europe. It may be different in America, and I I I, I don't know. Um, but in those uh, with those bodies, the um, what leads the uh, what's the the brand leader is um, is science. Anything that looks a bit like science is given um, a, a much more 
serious reading um, uh, and uh, uh, therefore can influence the flow of public money or maybe medical insurance money to both research but also clinical treatment. Uh, um, that's the, I, I suppose that I'm, I'm saying is an important uh, um, important area where we need to have influence as well as in uh, public opinion. I think public opinion will take care of itself uh, uh, probably. There will always be people who want to be listened to. Um, and that will mean there will always be people interested in um, uh, coming to analysts, as well as, you, as you say, coming to other forms of therapy where the therapist um, makes a point of uh, listening and taking an interest in the person as a person. So uh, I have a sort of uh, faith in human nature that they will... Um, uh, that there is always the interest in being listened to. Mm. That's not the same with uh, public funding yeah. and <laughs> medical insurance funding. No. Uh, they want to know that there's something that's got uh, credentials to it or science-like credentials to it. No. And, and, and that's really significant um, area which I would hope we can influence whether it's with my book or with some other, somebody else's book that's a bit along the same lines doesn't matter but i think that's where we have to really take the offensive well, it may be different in america different. i'm not so familiar with uh, with culture there i've been many times i think, if, times, I think, but, I think if anything mm. it's a little worse here um, yes um, uh, and uh i uh, certainly feel much more uh, cynical than I hear you. Oh, what's happening? Is this better? There you go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, you know, my thought is that the that uh, the insurance company. Hold on one sec. Sorry, we're having a little technical yeah. difficulty. I, it must be the companies not wanting to hear me say this. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> so um, what I what I wanted to say is that I you know in a certain sense neuroscience for example has uh, has really supported uh, psychoanalytic thinking it, it seems to me lately they really seem to be um, why is this happening because it wasn't happening before I don't know something happened a little uh, something's sorry. happening hold on I would sit back if you can and okay. stay away from are you okay. Are you able to hear me, Bob? Yes, yes I can hear you. There's a bit of an echo going yeah. on. But yeah. Yes, I can hear you. Um, so uh, neuroscience seems to be supporting a lot of our thinking. Um, there's, uh, there's, it seems to be showing that, the un that uh, thinking goes on in the unconscious areas of the mind and, um, and things of that nature. Uh, yes. But I, I, I think that um, that even if we were to prove, which I, uh, that we were uh, scientifically valid, uh, I have the feeling that um, that wouldn't necessarily be the enough because uh, in our country, managed care certainly doesn't want to uh, be paying for long-term therapy. Yes which yes. is uh, what we are. So yes. there's that. And so I have come to the uh, position to, to uh, connect up with what you said about liking to be political. Um, I have come to the position that it's almost not a psychoanalytic, a, a, not a problem of psychoanalysis alone, that we actually are just in the middle of a situation where uh, a lot of things that might be beneficial to human beings is not necessarily uh, on the forefront of anybody's uh, interest. That that that, in other words, it's not a corporate uh, concern. Um, corporate concern is with the bottom line. So yes. um, so I I don't know I, I don't know if this is a question or uh, a goading or. <laughs> or <laughs> 
or uh... it's <laughs> yes, it's it's um it's probably goading. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I agree with you that um, we get into political discussions here and what are, well, really, what are the values of our society? And um, I think this certainly goes way beyond the book that we're discussing, but I think it's not entirely irrelevant. It's a context in which the sort of debate that we need to have has to take place. What are the values of our society? And um, uh, it's, um, I, I, I suppose I feel perhaps a little bit despairing that sort of abstract value, money value can so often trump, um, human values of, um, truth and concern and care, uh, uh particularly in, in, in healthcare. Um, but this is a, slightly different um, area of interest, which I, I agree with you is, is connected. Right. Um, and maybe we do have to have uh, some strategy uh, for touching on to the coattails of hard science like neuroscience, like experimental psychology of the mother-infant uh, relationship and, and so on, uh, which can be uh, investigated with um, uh, the more more proper natural science methods. Mm-hmm. But I think that doesn't get us away from the need ourselves to put our house in order when we've actually, in my view, got too many different competing theories uh, which aren't really ever allowed to properly compete with each other because we don't have a a good method of showing which wins the competition, which theory is better than another theory. Uh, without that, we have um, a, a situation where you know almost anybody can uh, find three patients with a common dynamic, and then this becomes the latest great theory in psychoanalysis. Uh, this isn't good enough. We need to have a, a proper method of um, of uh, uh, com- uh, comparing our different theories. We need a sort of standard rule, which, um, I mean, rule as a, as a ruler, which uh, will measure something or other. It can't measure it in a quantitative terms because uh, subjectivity is not quantitative in the way that material things are. But that uh, we still need to have something which will be a standard against which we can measure our various theories uh, with, in the long run, uh, a need to weed and prune all the undergrowth of uh, entangled theories we've got. Right. But, right. Uh, well, I, I don't think we have too much time left, do we? No, you would. Uh, so, I guess interviewer, please. <laughs> okay. So I thought I would uh, be a devil's advocate and uh, bring it back to psychoanalysis and um, say that this research, uh, this idea of doing research is very interesting, but I'm wondering, I know you have an interest in Beyond. In fact, I'm reading as we speak one of your of that book, Beyond Sources, which I think is absolutely, oh, good. Oh, I think it's really? absolutely fantastic. I want to go on record as saying. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, yes. Fantastic scholarship and really fascinating for anyone interested in Beyond. Um, but, I, uh, you know, how, how do we do research uh, and, still, um, and still engage with Beyond's dictum of uh, going into each session with that memory or desire, for example? How are we going to be doing research and walking into that session without a research mind? Well, I'm not advocating that people adopt a research mind when they go into a clinical session. Um, I think clinicians should go in 
to a session with a clinical frame of mind, <laughs> one based on intuition, inspiration, what's beyond uh, called the, uh, you know, the, the idea of reverie that one allows things to evolve in one's mind. I think that's a, an important uh, clinical principle. Mm-hmm. I think um, uh, what I'm uh, what I'm advocating is that there is a research moment in that when you take the plunge and use something which has evolved in your mind to say something to the patient, then what happens? You are, you are engaged not just in uh, the evolution of new meanings, new senses, which are uncontaminated with uh, prior uh, memories and with the desire to treat and cure and so on. Um, One's not just interested in those new thoughts which come, but in a process that is set going in the interaction between two minds, a process which has an outcome. And I think uh, we have to think in terms of Beyond's, um, you know, I I think Beyond's ideas about memory and desire are important. Perhaps I don't think they're as important as some people think because they remind me particularly of Freud's uh, idea of free-floating attention. And I suspect Beyond got a lot of his ideas from that. Um, But... uh, Let's do some research. But there is another purchase we have to have on our clinical acumen and that is to be able to think in terms of a process as well as an evolving meaning in one's mind there's an evolving process in the interaction between analyst and patient i'm i'm very much in favor of the notion of an intersubjectivity although i don't quite go along with an analytic third object. I think the third is a process which is created between analyst and patient. I don't know if that's, um, that makes sense or if I'm, I'm, I'm just waffling, but I'm saying yeah. there's something about an emerging meaning and experience, something in the mind, and then there is also, and rather separately, a process which is set going by this evolved meaning. And uh, it's the second of these, the process, which I think is the research uh, moment. So, um, I'm saying there's a, there is a connection, I think. I, I, I would say that what Beyond has tried to describe as the way of evolving meanings and sense in the session is important, but um, there is also the process that we expect that evolution of some meaningful sense to have an effect on on the patient. Um, Bob, I think we're going to have to draw this to a close. I'm sure you have to go have dinner or something, yeah. right? <laughs> Late over there, much later over there by you than, than by us. But um, I just yes. wanted to thank you very much. We could have gone on for quite a long time, and um, you have so many books. I I, gra- I chose this one because I had just done a single case study, very different um, in form and structure from from what you were recommending. But uh, I wanted to... Um, you know, sort of noctroglycite, like go back and say, oh, okay, what's, what is research on the couch having having just completed it? So I really want to thank you for um, spending the time with us. And uh, I have a feeling that um, we'll interview you more because you have, um, you have so many books. So if, if you enjoyed, your, if you enjoyed, your, seriously, if you enjoyed yourself, um, you know, just uh, send us an email and let us know what you want to be interviewed about. And we'll, we'll try to do what we can to over time. Um, because uh, you're very prolific, um, get to uh, get to your work. Um, did you want to say? 
No, just that this has been a great pleasure for me. It's been wonderful to talk to you, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to do it. So, this yes, is and can I, can I thank you too for your interest and your 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 fair-minded approach to my to my work. It's, uh, it's, it's been very enjoyable. Uh, well, that's the idea is to have is 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 for it to be enjoyable. So I'm pleased that that you found it as such. Um, so this is uh, Tracy Morgan, your host as always with Jesse Oppenheim. Um, uh, the guest uh, interviewer, guest host. Um, we're going to be signing off for now and um, tune in until next time where we'll be speaking with Stephen Kuchak uh, on his book, Clinical Implications of the Psychoanalyst Life Experience When the Personal Becomes Professional. So, Bob, until then, um, we look forward to talking to you more, that's for sure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.